It seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, a podcast presented by Design Pickle. My name is Kate Rooney, and I'm with my effervescent co-host, Jess Guffey. Hello, Jess. Hello, Catherine. How's it going today? Nailed it. Nailed the intro. <laughs> Doing great. We didn't take 10 takes before this. We definitely didn't have what you dubbed the church giggles leading up to this. Definitely not. <laughs> we would not do something like that. <laughs> Never. We are extremely professional. This yeah. is a professional podcast. Yep. And we only talk about serious topics. Yes. You know? That's it. Yes. We There's Correct. nothing to laugh about. Um <laughs> So I actually don't know why we were laughing so hard, but here we are. We made it through. We're on the other side of it. We were laughing because you were telling me about how you did a recital as a child (laughs) to a song called Popcorn (laughs) Peanut Butter Balls. What is that? (laughs) Better question. Who chose that song? (laughs) Who wrote that song? God. We have a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions for everything, including why creative people operate the way that they do. Do you like my smooth pivot right there? Wow. Would you call that smooth? I don't know about that, but I'll give it to you. (laughs) That's like popcorn peanut butter smooth. Wow. I'm going to bring it back full circle. Mm -hmm. Should we we tell a story today? I think you should tell a story today. (sighs) Fine. I can tell a story. Now, I have to say, Kate... I feel as though this person might be the most creative person we've ever talked about. And obviously creativity is very subjective. Like you can't pit creative people against each other because it's also different. But when you look at this person, I think you'll probably agree with me that they might be the most creative person ever. Hmm. I also would like to point out that I've racked my brain for a creative way to introduce this to you. But I can't because there's so much. And instead, I will just ask you if you know that a dream is a wish that your heart makes <gasps> when you're fast asleep. Oh, is that from that? Cinderella? I do yeah. know that. I I tell myself that every morning when I wake up. <laughs> it's your daily affirmation to yourself. Uh-huh. So with that, yes, that is from Cinderella. And as you can probably guess from there... Yes. No. <laughs> You're not doing Walt Disney right now. We are covering Walter Elias Disney <gasps> today. Jessica Guffey. I can't believe you've done this. That's amazing. I'm I so to, excited. I have to say, I did not come up with this topic on my own. Uh, it was actually a listener of ours that suggested it. And I was like, why didn't either of us think of this prior? Because that's a beast to take on. But when you were saying, you're, you'll probably agree with me that this is the most creative person. I'm like, yeah, okay. But... Way to doubt me. Okay. I <laughs> I have to agree with you. Wow. And we haven't even talked about him. Yep. 
So let's dive into Walter Elias Disney's life. I have to also point out before we do this, that this is yet again, a historical figure by all intents and purposes. And it is our opinion. There's so much information. Like it would Mm -hmm. take years to get through everything that's out there on this person but we chose our favorite per the huge and it is our opinion so if you disagree let us know but tried our best to (laughs) jam it all in here because wow Mm -hmm. obviously there's uh, a lot to be said about mr disney um one other quick anecdote from doing this research it was really really weird to keep writing disney in reference to him and not the company because it's so commercialized now and he's been gone for a long time so you don't really associate him with it anymore so to type disney over and over again as the person i was like this is a weird thing to wrap your head around i can't really explain it but he's the original disney so it's not just a thing it's a name it's a person exactly there's a dude behind it anyways he was born in 1901 in chicago illinois shout out chai town and Lots of Chicagoans lately. Yeah, I'm into it. I know. Cool. Not mad about it. You have family there too. We have I Chicago do. ties Big on both sides. Polish family over there. Yep. Uh, when he was a child, they moved to Marceline, Missouri, and lived on a farm. And he spent most of his childhood there. He was the second youngest of four siblings, and it has been said by many people that he had an interest in drawing from a young age. So he would take newspaper cartoons and copy them. He would draw animals and horses of neighborhood people really just anything to get his creative juices flowing but his dad did not really believe in the arts and did not pay for any art supplies for him so he kind of had to just figure out with a pencil and go from there while he was there he became enamored with trains which is not at all relevant to anything really but if you think about (laughs) disney theme parks it kind of clicks oh Uh, sure yeah trams everywhere (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in 1911, they moved to Kansas City, Missouri, because the farm wasn't doing that great and his dad wanted a change. So they got there and he purchased the delivery route for the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Times, which meant that Walt and his brother Roy had to work the paper route every morning at 4.30 a.m. Like, they didn't ask for that. That sucks. Your dad goes out. <laughs> <It> sucks. <laughs> Your dad goes out and buys two papers and is like, "Surprise! You get to wake up at four thirty. Congrats!" <laughs> like, no. Wow. Start him young, I guess. <laughs> I suppose so. Because of this, and because he was so tired from waking up at four thirty a.m., he was not a good student. He would also tend to use his time by drawing characters instead of studying while he was in school. Yet another uh, creative that doesn't really care about school not surprising he also was an entertainer from a young age so he would dress up as abraham lincoln who is his favorite president and recite the gettysburg address just to entertain people (laughs) i still think of so many ties back to to disneyland because they have the whole presidential hall with Mm -hmm. the animatronics and everything exactly who knew and it all started in his childhood Uh, As we kind of alluded to, the family relied on the kids to make money. They were not by any means well off. And his dad was pretty tough. So he, by nature, was closer to his older brothers than he was to his dad. So while they lived there, their home was less than three miles from Electric Park. And this is a theme park that was the biggest attraction in Kansas City. And it was quoted as being called a hugely ambitious theme park. Now, Walt, as it may not surprise you, would often take his younger sister Ruth there And it was clearly inspiration for his later work with theme parks. So we're seeing a lot of early inspiration in his life that would get him to where we all know him as today as an iconic figure. Hmm. 
1917, the family moves back to Chicago, and he drew for his high school newspaper there, mostly patriotic and American-themed cartoons. And he took courses at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts during this time as well. So because Walt was a young man that always wanted new experiences and kind of got bored of things pretty easily, he attempted to join the army. However, he was rejected because he was far too young to join the army at that point. He's what, 16? Yeah. He's around 16, 17. So instead, he dropped out of high school, forged his birth certificate, and joined the Red Cross as an ambulance driver because he really wanted to help out. Whoa. Yeah, uh, across the world. So they accepted him. He moved to France, and he was an ambulance driver there. And because he's so creative, he would paint the side of his ambulance with cartoons and different characters to try to keep things lighthearted and keep people entertained. And actually, his drawings were showcased in army magazine because people caught on that he was doing this and they were like this is actually a pretty cool way to try to keep spirits up and whatnot and one of his mates at the red cross later became the first ceo at mcdonald's ray Kroc. what yeah so you have two of the most (sighs) successful ceos of all time essentially working together in france on ambulances yeah what was in the water in france in the ambulances (laughs) (laughs) wild creativity apparently So in 1919, he returned to the United States and returned to Kansas City and started drawing at commercial art studios. So he was drawing things like ads, catalogs, more as the name implies, commercial pieces. But he was laid off not too long after he started because of declining revenue at the studio. So from there, he went to a film ad company that did cutout animation ads, which if you don't know what cutout animation is, it's really hard to describe. So look it up because it's pretty cool and it's pretty old school. But He went there, and this is where he first really took an interest to animation as a practice, and he befriended Oob Iwerks, which we're probably butchering, but that's fine. Sorry, Mr. Iwerks. In 1920, they started Laughogram Studios, so this was his first studio on his own and away from all the commercial studios and projects that he was working on. And it was there that they started to experiment with some themes that we still see in Disney movies today, so... Things like animals, mixed up fairy tales, slapstick humor. It all started at Laughogram Studio. Laughogram. Aside, if I love or hate that name, I think I it's like terrible. it. It's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. I think I like it for their purposes, but yeah. I mean, uh, importantly, is it spelled laugh like actual laugh or L-A-F-F? It is actual laugh, the proper spelling. Mm, I would have been cool with it if it was laugh <laughs> Stupid. Sorry, carry on. Laugh of Well, we'll put that in the suggestion box. So at Laughogram Studio, the production costs were far too high and they signed unfair distribution agreements. So Walt was just super ambitious. He really thought that they were going to be able to take over the world with the productions that they were creating, but he had no sense of business whatsoever. So he started signing all these agreements and they just hmm. really screwed them over. They really thought that they struck gold when a Tennessee production company offered them $11,000 for six shorts. So they produced the shorts on their own dime, but they never saw a penny from the production company. So this company, because they had the rights, they actually kept the rights to them and released the shorts when Disney became a household name, just as a quick sidebar, which clearly... Rude. Yeah. Clearly Walt had not a great idea of what was what in the business world. (laughs) So they were about to call the studio quits, but 
they thought of doing animation and live action as a hybrid series. So that's where they came up with Alice's Wonderland or the Alice comedies as they're also referred to. So they started production on that. And in 1923, they unfortunately became bankrupt because the production was so expensive and they did not have money coming in for distribution rights. So Walt packed it up, decides to go to Hollywood and said he was interested in becoming a live action film director. Hmm. Now, During this time, Alice's Wonderland, or the Alice Comedies, whatever you want to refer to it as, attracted the attention of New York distributor Margaret J. Winkler. Even though they weren't profitable, distributors encouraged them to lower production costs by lowering salaries and increasing the rate of production. So already you can see that's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Now, this is also around the time that his brother Roy joins the team, and they officially decide to form the Disney Brothers studio. Roy has a much better business sense so we will see how he has impacted the disney company and walt himself but because he was trying to cut costs and increase production they figured that they needed to hire cheaper labor so roy's suggestion was to hire an all-female team of colorists because one (sighs) what (laughs) i mean just that yeah that sentence alone we have to cut costs so we're gonna hire a team of women (laughs) Oh, just wait. Oh, for one, they thought that because the work was meticulous, repetitive, and required large teams, females would be a good fit for that at the time. And, of course, the very obvious, female wages were much lower at the time, so they could hire more women for less to do the job. Now, the colorist work was considered less important work than the animators, which is not a surprise, and they did not get treated as real artists, even though... Obviously, it was very important. It was the work that brought the characters to life with all the color. It seems like it's very technical, too. Yeah. I mean, it requires an insane amount of precision and artistry to color these characters and get the shading right and all of that stuff. So Mm -hmm. the whole claim is just kind of bullshit. Let's be real. (laughs) Walt tried very hard to keep the female. They called them ink and paint girls. So he oh, tried. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I knew this part was going to be great for your reactions, but he tried very hard to keep them separate from the male animators, like legit segregated them in the office. And they instituted a policy against inner office dating, but it didn't work because many of the animators ended up marrying ink and paint girls. And they even made a company manual depicting it. So mostly I saw pictures of it and I wish I took some so I could show you, but most of the manual was a male animator gawking at a female ink and paint artist and just like openly being gross and creepy. But they're like, Mm. don't do this. But if you do, it's okay. So weird words. That is weird. It's also, I mean, it's obviously just indicative of of the time. Exactly. It, It feels not, that long ago you know what i mean it wasn't it for sure wasn't but i didn't know this uh this is where the phrase don't dip your pen in the company ink comes from. stop it no way yeah so walt and roy sent out a memo that said if you were in animation you weren't supposed to dip your pen in the company's ink and paint so that's where the whole phrase comes from we have Disney to credit. <laughs> My mind is blown right now. That's I wild. Know. And it's very literal. <laughs> yes. For them, it was literal. So 
I just thought that was a fun little fact, even though the, it's super fun. I mean, it's not it's fun, not, but, but it it, I'm glad that I know that now. Thank right? you. You're welcome. So as it would probably not surprise you, the females to try to prevent more inner office dating, they created a very strict dress code for females because of course it's the females that are the problem, you know, terrible. I just threw my pen across the room. <laughs> you, you threw your ink. <laughs> not into the company well that's good but there was also rampant sexual harassment because it was way before people were used to having females in the workplace they were very advanced to do this and employ females at all but men were not used to having females to look at in the workplace so just rampant sexual harassment but walt did not put up with dirty jokes and would scold people if they took it too far he was just oh. not about it and every time an inner office marriage would occur, Walt would get really passive aggressive about it. He once said, I'm supposed to fire one of you two people and would just make them really uncomfortable if they got married. However, dear Walt was a little hypocritical with this because he actually met his wife, who was an ink artist, her name was Lillian, at the company. So <laughs> it was customary at the time for the colorists to be dropped off at their houses after work, which like... Just take a beat on that for a second. Can't imagine that. I mean, free ride. I don't know. I guess. And he always wanted to spend more time with Lillian, so she he made sure that she was the last to be dropped off. Which, okay, kind of cute. Kind of cute. No, I don't think but... it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe, like, in, in theory or, like, while he's doing it, it was cute, but just the way that was phrased... Made sure she was the last. Yeah, it sounds a little creepy. The idea is cute. Uh, sure. The execution might not be. And from there, they started dating, got engaged, got married. And just as a quick sidebar on Lillian, she's fascinating in her own right, but she always had zero interest in Hollywood. Zero. She never wanted anything to do with it. They ended up having two daughters together. And for a long time, Walt was really paranoid about them being in the public eye because kidnappings were happening more and more at that time to public figures so Lillian stayed home with them and just kind of stayed out of the public eye they were never photographed by the paparazzi or anything like that just because he was so paranoid about it which I thought was interesting considering mm -hmm. all the acts and stuff Hollywood's trying to do now to prevent kids from being photographed against their will so in 1927 Walt starts working on his first real character outside of Alice's Wonderland called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And this is when he wanted to try to branch out on his own with distribution. But by 1928, he could not leave his contract with Winkler due to the intellectual property being owned by Winkler and her husband, Charles Mintz. So Oswald was technically owned by Winkler, if you recall her from Alice's Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Now, they kept driving up expectations of the animators, which reflected poorly on Walt, and he wanted larger production fees, but Mintz wanted reductions, so when they were portraying that to all the animators, it just made Walt look really bad, and it made it look like he wasn't protecting them, and Mintz took advantage of that and was able to convince most of the artists to work directly with him instead. So, it was around this time that Walt found out Universal owned the rights to Oswald, and Mintz threatened him about producing the series himself if he didn't accept the reductions in production that he was suggesting. So, not a surprise, but the... <laughs> what? I, I just have kind of a, a stupid question, but are these these animations, they're like mini films that are and being... And this time they're just creating the character, so it was just Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, 
as a character. Okay. And so he had the animators working on just different scenes of Oswald and like what they could create with him. And by movies, I mean the talkies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those. So given that Walt was being painted so poorly by Mintz and all the artists were really, really upset, they left and most were hired by Universal. But our good old pal Ub, Oob, Iwerks, was the only Ubi. one to stay behind because he's a good man. We love Oob. We love Oob. <laughs> I love that name so much. <laughs> In 1928, we see the first iteration of Mortimer Mouse. Yes, I was waiting for Mickey Mouse to come in. Now, so exciting. There is a rumor, there are a lot of rumors about Mickey slash Mortimer's origin story, but many people think that it was inspired by a pet mouse that Walt had adopted in his old studio. <laughs> so, yeah. His little pet mouse that rode around a steamboat? I guess. (laughs) Makes sense. So when Walt first created this character, obviously its name was Mortimer, but it was actually Lillian, Walt's wife, that said, Mortimer is way too pretentious. You need to change it to something more appealing. So that's when Walt changed it to Mickey, which I did not know. Of course, Lillian's like, I hate Hollywood, but you know... This would be better off if it was Mickey. (laughs) Can you imagine nowadays if if that name stuck and we're like, Mort Mouse. It doesn't roll off the tongue like Mickey does. No, and it doesn't go with Minnie as well. Mortimer and Minnie. (laughs) (laughs) Couple of the century. Terrible. Uh, Iwerks had a big role in the final version of Mickey, so he adjusted the whole character to make it easier to animate. So we have to credit him to, to the iconic character that we know now. It was said that he designed Mickey's physical appearance, but Walt gave him his soul. Cute. That's cool. So I don't know <laughs> what it means, but that's what someone said about it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waiting to hear more about Walt's soul because thus far it's mostly been like his climb to success and mm-hmm. he has passions. He knew this from a young age. This is what he wanted to do. So we see time and time again and is fighting to make it a reality now what is his soul portrayed and i'm thinking about what mickey mouse is like this kind of uh almost similar to kind of the design pickle pickle guy you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like kind of a saucy fun character so yeah I'm, I'm, i'm curious to hear more about his personality and how we put that into his characters we shall find out so for one, Walt was the first voice of Mickey, and he actually voiced him for 20 years, which I did not know. 20 years? hmm And then someone else took over. And as you know, Kate, and as you alluded to, Steamboat Willie was the first Mickey appearance, and it was the first post-produced sound cartoon. So Whoa. Walt had a contract with a former Universal exec to use the Cinephone recording system, which then allowed them to distribute and become super popular with that film which all the technology at that time was so behind, obviously, where we are now. That's a given. But the fact that it was the first sound cartoon, I think, mm-hmm. just shows Walt's genius in that space. I can't really get over the fact that Universal was around back then. I forget that it's been a Forever. studio for that long. Mm-hmm. So because Steamboat Willie was becoming more popular, more success was coming to them, more attention was coming to them. Walt wanted more money. But the Universal exec refused, 
And because of that, he just felt really disheartened. He felt really upset that despite having this successful character, this successful film, someone would reject him like that. So he had a nervous breakdown in 1931. Oh. Yeah. Wow, we're taking a swift hard turn right here. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to that story, but it wasn't one that I felt would convey the whole point of him having a nervous breakdown. The bottom line is he felt screwed over. He felt betrayed. He felt like he had hit a wall that he couldn't overcome and he had a nervous breakdown because of it. Just why do so many of the creatives that we cover have nervous breakdowns? I feel like we every single it's, episode. I know. And we're not like lo- looking for people specifically. Like which famous no people idea. have had a nervous breakdown? <laughs> yeah, it's that's like, what I Google. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. No, it's like we're, we're researching these people. And then it's like in 1932, so-and-so had to go to the mental institution. It's like, whoa, this is crazy uh, yeah literally <laughs> I, had, I had no idea about walt disney though i mean me you just, either with so much in this guy's life so much and his legacy that that certainly is never discussed at any point oh so to make himself feel better and to try to get back on track mentally he went on a very long extended vacation with lillian to cuba and also to panama to try to recover And he was gone for a really long time. The specifications around the actual length are mixed, but it looks like he kind of took from 1931 to 1932 off. So for almost a whole year, he was just kind of out of the scene. But by the time he got back, he was ready to go again in true creative fashion. And in 1932, he signed with Columbia Pictures for Mickey Mouse. Now, this is also where he produced the first three-strip Technicolor film, Flowers and Trees. And after this film, all of his films were in color. So this is really a a turning point because, as you may recall, Kate, Steamboat Willie was not. It was very, very dull. (laughs) It's in black and white, yeah. Exactly. So this actually won an Academy Award, and he was also nominated and received an honorary award for the creation of Mickey at that Academy Award ceremony. So back on the up and up, he is. It sounds like his time off paid off because he Mm -hmm. came back swinging. It's cool. So in 1933, he creates Three Little Pigs, and this wins yet another Academy Award. And this multiple, you know, consecutive successes led to the studio growing again. And by that point they had around 200 people. And so Mm. people say this is really where he started to go from understanding animation, understanding cartooning, understanding characters to really getting the importance of storytelling. And people still say to this day that he's the best to ever live at storytelling. And that really struck me. I've never thought of that before, but when you think about Disney (laughs) over the years, even if he was recycling old fairy tales and turning them into something new, that really is what he excelled at, it seems. He knew the heart of what makes it successful, and that is the the story, the human connections, things that we can relate to. And even going to, to Disneyland, which growing up in Southern California, it was a huge part of my life. And, yep. and entering the theme park is like a story. I mean, you're in the downtown area, and then it opens up into the next world, and oh, you're kind we'll of get going there. through. <gasps> I'm yeah. so excited. Okay, cool. <laughs> So because he believed in storytelling so much, he hired a specific story team 
at this time. So it was its own department to really nail down the plot lines and make sure that everything flowed in a really good way. And they worked with the animation team hand in hand to make sure everything was cohesive, which I thought was interesting that they didn't have one prior to then, but yeah, wait a minute. Okay. So in 1934, Walt calls everyone to the office, not every single person, not all 200, but you know, the most important animators and storytellers. And instead of just giving a presentation, he acted out Snow White and announced it as their new project, what would be their biggest to date. Someone said he was not a skilled animator, but no one could deny his storytelling abilities. And they were specifically referring to this moment because I guess the way that he acted out Snow White was just so charismatic and so captivating that the entire team was like, let's do this. This is crazy, but we're going to do it. Can you imagine being in the room at that time? <laughs> no. That's so wild. No. Now, a quick sidebar just on Walt. Another animator described him as the conductor of an orchestra, and the animators were the musicians. He could meticulously micromanage each frame of an animation because he knew what the audience wanted, which is exactly what you said. Pulling on the emotions. Mm-hmm. Now, what's also interesting about this is, despite the charisma that he appeared to have and that he portrayed to his staff and to the public. There were many reports about him being very self-deprecating behind closed doors and painfully shy. But there are also people that said he milked this and knew exactly what he was doing by playing the quote bashful tycoon. And he was also rumored to be super informal and hated when people called him Mr. Disney, which is why still to this day, all the Disney employees only have their first name on their name tags. So, just a lot of conflicting words there, right? Like shy, self-deprecating, but also was faking it's the bashful tycoon. Almost, it's almost as if people are complex figures with multiple feelings and emotions <laughs> happening. Because, yeah, I so mean, true. there are days when you're going to be more formal. Maybe you had a bad day, and then there's days that you're not. It's just when you're in the, you're thrust into the public scene. I mean, everyone's going to speculate, but yeah. So who really knows? Who knows? Now, back to Snow White. So, as you may recall, Kate, it's 1934. Obviously, the country was not in a good spot yeah, then. I recall in 1934. <laughs> you were alive, so it makes sense. <laughs> so, good year. Because no, it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> it, probably not the best year in our history, but it, you know no. what? Probably rivals 2020, I can tell you that. Sure, sure. Hot takes. That's got to be over here. <laughs> So because it was during the Great Depression, taking this type of film on was a huge risk. It was a feature length film. It was going to be the first with sound and color, full sound, full color. No one else had done this to date. And Walt believed in the project so much that he liquidated many of his personal assets to fund it because he knew that it was going to be a success. He was willing to do whatever it took to make it a success. So because of this and because of his commitment, many predicted it would bankrupt the studio. But nevertheless, Walt persisted. Nice. Oh, R.E.P. So, RGB. Side note. RBG. I, I know. RBG. I'm, I'm a designer. Come on. I get <laughs> exactly. Now, at this time, this was obviously the studio is still large. And it was said that the culture of Disney was very interesting at this time, or Disney Brothers Studio, rather. Most of the employees were under 25 and fresh out of art school. So it was very much described as a frat full of pranks. They'd play football, drink beer at lunch. They would draw real naked women in their free time. 
and <laughs> Walt. Like Scandy for the 1930s. <laughs> Walt actually found out about it because he found out about everything and made a statement to the public. But he was actually happy that the artists were practicing their skills in their free time and he let them continue drawing naked women in the actual Disney Brothers studio. <laughs> so. At what point do, does art become scandalous, though? Because we have nude models that people hire to Exactly. Paint, so. so they were just trying to get better at their skills. I'm sure it wasn't in that context, but I'm you know, trying to give them the, the benefit of the doubt right now. Right. So I just thought it was interesting because, you know, obviously this environment was, they're very close knit at this time still. It was very familial. And Walt saw himself as the uncle and the mentor, while Roy was more the strict father figure, let's get down to business mm. type of guy. Someone said, Walt was famous for his unrelenting demands in the studio, rarely giving praise to his staff. If you could get that'll work from Walt, that was a good day and meant you did your job. So all of this kind of is going on when they're trying to create Snow White. And I thought it was interesting that despite being such a risk, they're still able to keep this fun frat boy aspect to it family and maybe that's what made it a success who knows well i mean hearing you describe it it sounds i mean minus just the frat boy mentality and drawing naked women i mean it it sounds like a startup i mean he kind of was like he was creating a startup they were taking a risk and it's a smaller team it's a family and they don't know if they're going to be successful or not so you got to start somewhere exactly so that was over a span of three years that they were working on Snow White, and in 1937, it finally debuted, and it was a critical and commercial success. It's since been called a cultural phenomenon, but because people had worked so hard for three years with barely any breaks, they were completely exhausted, and Walt knew this and started making arrangements to give bonuses that were the equivalent to three months' salary. He also wanted to prevent burnout, so changed the work week from five and a half days, which was customary at the time. Can't imagine that. Five and a half? Yep. Saturday mornings. Woof. (laughs) Yeah. So he changed the work week from that to just five days, and to thank everyone, he wanted to throw a really big, really fun rap party for the entire staff. So he, he gets to book the party at Lake Narconian. Which is, is that still a thing? I didn't look it up. I don't even know what you just said. Apparently not. Yeah, apparently it was a big resort in the 30s, and it's Mm. uh, about an hour from LA, inland more. So, who knows? So, he wanted to cover all the expenses, and he made the theme of the party field day. Did you ever have field day as a kid in school? Like field field trips? No, field day was different. So, instead of being in the classroom, it was a whole day of like, different relay races and races and all this stuff like you do something i would hate so much (laughs) i loved it anyways so walt wanted to throw this party all expenses covered field day theme he actually had a program done by one of the animators and fun fact mickey was on the program and the animator decided to give mickey pupils for the first time oh and he had never, he'd only had little black dots for eyes. He had not had mm-hmm. full on pupils. And when the whole company got this program and invitation, they were all so freaked out by the change in the eyeballs. And they were all asking questions about if they're going to have to change everything with Mickey. And lo and behold, that became the version of Mickey that we see now in animated form, just from that wow. one program. 
Yep. Love to see it. This is how magic happens, everyone. Yeah. So you do, many you do things people. on a whim and you never know what's going to happen after that. I just love that people were so freaked out. They're like, no, we're going to have to change everything. I'll stress about it. We're going to have to go back to five and a half days. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So back to the party. Uh, The program, by the way, was like a detailed guide of what they could expect during this weekend. Which even like an internal event, it sounds like the amount of detail that went into it is is so creative and fun. Yep. So they had activities all weekend scheduled out. People could golf. They could hang by the pool. They could do whatever they felt like. And there was a rap party that night that got extremely crazy. As you can imagine, it was open bar, so things were getting wild. And the animators had coordinated a prank where a police officer came over to warn Walt. Walt was hammered at the time. So this police officer comes over and is like, sir, you need to behave yourself. And Walt's like, what did I do? I'm so sorry. (laughs) But they were all just doing it in good fun. He gave a speech, and everyone thought that that was going to be the announcement of the bonuses. But instead, he reminded everyone of the work of the future. And people were so pissed because they were like, oh, my God, what if we're not getting bonuses? And instead, the open bar is what he's considering our bonus. Mm -hmm. So to retaliate, they decided to, quote, bleed Walt dry via the open bar. So they just started chugging drinks all of them started chugging drinks from the open bar it was a mad Never rush a good solution <laughs> no mad rush leading up to midnight because obviously open bars typically close at midnight and they were trying to take full advantage of it so this is when things started getting really really crazy walt was smart and went to bed with his wife lillian but the rest of the company stayed up and started to go nuts around the property so someone rode a donkey at one point, <gasps> someone broke a horse out of its stall and rode it upstairs into the hotel. <laughs> someone fell out of a window into a bush, which the animators then made fun of. They made their own cartoon around this guy that fell into a bush. Awesome. Someone rode a horse into the pool. Why are uh, there horses everywhere? Because <laughs> it was like a cool property that had horses and animals and whatnot. And these people decided they were so drunk, they're going to break the horses out of their stall. Um, there was also a naked pool party which as you recall no no because ink and paint girls and animators were in the same pool both naked you don't dip in the same pool together needless to say I could go on and on about the hijinks they were pretty nuts but Walt heard about it not surprisingly and said never again are we doing a company party like this doesn't every company have that where they have a big you know end of the year party and then some people, there's it always gets out of hand, and then the higher ups next day, we are never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a prerequisite, so I feel like. I, just the visual of someone breaking a horse <laughs> out of its stall and riding it into the hotel. <laughs> like, it sounds so fun. Right? I'm surprised we haven't done that, Kate. because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten my hands on a horse yet. Yep. Needless to say, even though it was wild and crazy and they were all kind of pissed, kind of happy, whatever, it all paid off in the end because Snow White ended up winning an Academy Award, albeit an honorary one, and they gave Walt a full-size Oscar and then seven mini-Oscars with it for the seventh <gasps> oh, award. stop it! No! 
that's so cute i can't stop thinking about this because i love my mom gave me the straight i love things that are proportionately wrong so they're either too big or too small to what they should be and when you picture the little mini oscars (laughs) i just how is that not public knowledge that's so precious i just thought that was my favorite fact of the whole episode (laughs) so clever Anyways, this launched the golden years of animation. So this is when they moved the studio to Burbank to accommodate all the growth that they were going through. Walt formed the Penthouse Club at this new studio, which was only available to his favorite animators, which were not necessarily the most talented or loyal ones, but just the ones that he thought were his favorites. Interesting. Didn't love that. Uh, This was also not the first time that Walt was accused of rampant favoritism. So... Not not thrilled about that fact, but, you know, at this time they had over a thousand employees. So as you recall, when we first started the Snow White journey, they had 200. Now they have a thousand. And like any company that's going through some growth, the culture completely changed from just a little family at this time became more corporate. And with that, let's take a quick break. Hey, Jess, what do you call a pickle lullaby? I don't know, Kate. Tell me. A cucumber slumber number. (laughs) Oh, no. I did not see that coming. (laughs) Mm, Nope. That joke may have been the worst, but Design Pickle is not the worst. Definitely not the worst. And there's a reason that Design Pickle has been ranked on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for the past two years. And it's because they aren't the worst. No, Design Pickle offers flat rate, unlimited graphic design and creative services with unlimited revisions, brand profiles, a Zapier integration, Adobe source files, all that good stuff. And we have a special deal for all of you listeners. So if you're listening to our nonsense and you need graphic design help or custom illustration help, you can use the code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan. That's coupon code WORST, W-O-R-S-T, for $100 off any plan of Design Pickle, our Essentials plan, our Pro plan, custom illustrations. Just head over to designpickle.com and select the plan that's right for you and get $100 off. And get creating. So at this point, we're in 1940. As you recall, we're going through the golden years of animation here. But this is around the start of World War II, which means all the things that are horrible in life, politics, war, and loss of a global audience. So, yeah, they the studio came out with Fantasia and Pinocchio, and they both flopped horribly. Really? Yes. Fantasia? I thought that was, like, the biggest thing. Me too. Have you seen it? I... (laughs) I could never get into it. Uh, Yeah, but when, I mean, back in 1934, before it was even created, so. Yeah, obviously. You're like 100 years old, it's fine. Anyways, uh, (laughs) pay cuts were rampant at this time to try to keep up with the loss that they were experiencing with loss in revenue. The studio was deeply in debt. The pay scale was all over the place and completely arbitrary. So certain animators that were the best would make a lot of money, but then someone else that was on the same level would make infinitely less. And it, it just made no sense. It was a mess. Mm. Not sure how Roy let this happen because he seemed like he was on top of things. But 
whatever. Uh, Walt was also not as accessible to the animators at this time. So as you recall, they were huge at this point. They had a thousand employees and people that were there from the beginning were used to him walking around, helping them out, looking at stuff in real time. And he just kind of wasn't around anymore, according to them. He was there, but not there. So all this stuff built tension. And in 1941, there was a strike over wage disputes. And it was said that the strike totally changed Walt. Many people left. There were a lot of relationships ruined from this, but there were reports that he would give high-performing staff significant bonuses. So yet again, kind of all over the place, we see the favoritism again with the arbitrary pay scale. Just not great for Walt. Not a good Mm -hmm. look on him, and people blamed him for this. So not great on top of a world war, perhaps. Now, Also in 1941, Dumbo was released, despite limited production value. So they originally intended to make it much higher production value, but because of all the cuts, they decided to go with limited. And to everyone's surprise, it was still a critical and commercial success. Uh, Side note, I can't watch Dumbo because elephants are my favorite animal, and I just can't stomach it. Me neither. Can't do it. Will not. Can't. Have not seen the remake. Just the name Dumbo makes me sad. (sighs) Yes. I agree. I don't know why this is in here, but I felt it was necessary to say that even with all the (laughs) the tensions really high, it was made worse because he would cough very loudly before entering a room to make it clear to his employees that he was coming and they needed to be ready and on their game. So despite having rumors of him being inaccessible, he would still pull stuff like this and people were like, okay, bro, (laughs) like... You don't need to announce your presence. <laughs> Whatever. On one hand, thanks for letting us know that you're coming in. Yes. So we can hide our new drawings. True. Bambi was also released around this time and absolutely hemorrhaged money. Obviously, uh, it's horrible. <laughs> another one. Cannot watch. Mm-mm. What What was going on with Walt where he had Dumbo and Bambi back to back? I know. So depressing. So... As I mentioned, this is World War II time, so they were trying to make money, and the thing that started making them money again were propaganda films. Oh. Obviously a little bit insensitive during times of war, but they were doing what they had to do to stay afloat, and they made films that encouraged people to pay their income taxes to support the war. This was commissioned by the Treasury Department. They made training films for the American military, They also made a film that made fun of Nazis using Donald Duck. And they did all this despite Walt really, really wanting to abstain from politics. He wanted nothing to do with it, but he was like, I have to do this to keep the studio afloat. So guess we're going to do it. Now, this time period has drawn a lot of criticism, as you can guess, because there were also films that came out that did not age well at all. So he, Oh, man. I knew you were going to get into this. <laughs> yeah. So he's been criticized, still is criticized, about the perpetuation of black stereotypes and racism. There was a writer that said Walt Disney was no racist. He never, either publicly or privately, made disparaging remarks about blacks or asserted white superiority. Like most white Americans of his generation, however, he was racially insensitive. Mm. Now... A black animator that came on board, his name was Floyd Norum, said he never observed a hint of racism from Walt. So the question I think is really, was it just for the times? 
and now we look at it and we're like, this is ridiculously insensitive and portrays racist commentary and all that stuff. Or was he secretly racist and just was really good about hiding it? We don't know. Yeah. Again, with the, the historical creatives that we cover, that's always a, an interesting topic because that was, I mean, there's still uh, so much racial injustice today, but back then it was like, that was the status quo. Right. But he had black artists and animators on the team, but that doesn't mean that he's not <laughs> racist in any way. Right. And another another bad uh, bad check mark in Walt's <laughs> column of bad things. Oh boy. He was rumored to be anti-Semitic oh. and attended a pro-Nazi organization's meetings. He also hosted a Nazi propagandist to Disney. Oh. In the studio. And again, despite all this, a Jewish employee who hated Walt, hated his guts, never accused him of making slurs or taunts of the anti-Semitic variety, and he was never accused by other Jewish employees of this. He also had several Jewish people in highly influential positions within the studio. So accounts of this and but is that confirmed that he was participating in these Nazi groups, though? So people say that he was not anti-Semitic himself, but he aligned himself with people that uh, were. Uh, okay. That's yeah. extreme. Yeah. So again, we don't know the true story. This is just based on the research, but the use of stereotypes specifically has been acknowledged by the Disney family since they actually have a whole exhibit on it in the museum that's dedicated to Walt. Hmm. So they're trying to obviously address this. They've even, this is a total tangent, but they've pulled things from Disney plus in the past Mm -hmm. several, I would say months. If they're too ridiculously racist, they've pulled them from it. So like, they're trying but who knows how walt was and too little too late yeah, that's I don't crazy know. They, they pulled that in the last recent months though mm-hmm. it's 2020 i know hikes i know now because these two weren't enough he was also accused of cultural imperialism in his films and was accused of using his films as an agent of manipulation for other cultures that that to me seems silly because obviously what does that even mean it means like he was trying to insert American ideals into other cultures uh, and cram it down their throats and like showcase what American life is like. And I'm like that argument I struggle with because regardless of what his intentions were, maybe they were bad. But to me, it seemed like he was just trying to make films that represent. Yeah, I mean, he's he's American and he's making cartoons with a talking duck. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. Who knows? I don't know. Just thought that was an interesting sidebar because I think a lot of people, when they think of Walt Disney, probably don't think of someone who's anti-Semitic or racist, but there are reports about both. So here we are. Here we are. So around this time, Roy really wanted to do more live action and animation combos to make the studio more money. So they started diversifying into nature documentaries and live action films which obviously has not changed at all because if you've ever gone on Disney Plus, they have a whole film and section dedicated to documentaries of the nature variety, including one about elephants. That is fantastic. <laughs> now, in 1941 and beyond, despite his total disdain for politics, Walt started to get more active. 
Maybe that was because of the war, maybe other things, who knows. But he founded the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. He was rumored to have been pissed about the labor strikes that originally happened. So he became very involved with anti-communism and anti-fascism efforts. Okay. Uh Okay. He also attended a testimony before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, where he painted former animators and pro-union people as, quote, communist agitators. Oh, boy. There's a whole story about this. Again, it would take too long to go into it, but basically he had a lawyer that was questionable at the time, and he started believing this guy instead of his actual staff, which is where he got the term communist agitators from. It's pretty aggressive. These are people who are, like, trying to make art. That's so weird, though, that they were doing propaganda stuff before, and you mentioned that they had uh, Donald Duck doing a... a anti-nazis yeah i know it's kind of all over the place it really is so around this time it was also alleged by the new york times that he was passing information to the fbi of what (laughs) i don't know (laughs) what could he possibly how do you go to just creating cartoons not just creating cartoons because it's more than that to talking to the fbi and being an informant for the fbi (laughs) No idea, but he was even allowed to film at the FBI headquarters in exchange for the info. This is all alleged, but yeah. Who knows? So that's the 40s. Kind of a weird time for the Disney studio. Uh, Just all over the place. He's like, I hate politics, but you're all fascist anarchists and communists. (laughs) Agitators. Yeah, Yeah, whatever. So we get to 1950, and he kind of tries to settle the dust a little bit. He returns to animation with a film called cinderella you may have heard of it this was a critical and commercial success as well he also did the live action movie treasure island in the same year and he continued at this point since he was very uh convinced that politics were important he started to continue to insert patriotic themes throughout his films so we have that to look forward i'm I'm racking my brain thinking about what's included in that I never knew all this, obviously, so I think it'll be interesting to go back and watch some of the films from Uh this time and see what we pick up on now. Sure. In 1951, Alice in Wonderland comes out, also Peter Pan, and he starts becoming less involved with the animation because he wanted to focus on other things and fulfill his other visions during this time. But despite this and wanting, you know, typical creative wants to do 90 other things, he always wanted to be present at the story meetings. As we know, storytelling was his favorite thing, so he was always present. Meanwhile, Roy started pushing the idea of using TV as a selling aid and source of revenue. And they started to toy with this idea and wondered what they could do to fulfill this. And this is when Walt has his idea for a theme park. (gasps) Ta-da! Now, when quick, you f- quick, quick note here, though. Sorry, don't. Uh, sorry for cutting you off, but I, I was, I'm still racking my brain thinking about how he was injecting this, like politics, into his movies, and I think about how in almost every Disney movie, even more recent ones, it's like the villain is not American or like not a white cisgender male in any way you know what i mean like uh true so yeah it's it's always like the the villain is 
darker in appearance or maybe has an accent or something like that True. and they're trying to do something that's against the american norm so just throwing that out there i can kind of see it now i can totally Yikes. especially if you think about peter pan too like captain hook obviously is different i don't know we could probably mm-hmm. do a whole podcast on that so <laughs> that's not let's well, not so walt is thinking hey what if I just created a theme park? Obviously we learned from his early life that he liked theme parks. He decides to tell Lillian about it. And her response was, but why? <laughs> love why Lillian. Not? <laughs> I love her. Love her sass. She said, they're so dirty. They're just gross. They're so crowded. Why would we want to do something like that? But Walt in his heart knew that it was not going to be like that. If he ever created one. So in 1952, He received zoning for Burbank, but he ended up needing more space than Burbank would allow, which is why he went to Anaheim. So, which is what, 30 minutes from you, maybe? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. About. Yeah. Depending on traffic. Good old Southern California traffic. Mm -hmm. Now, to distance the project from the shareholders of the studio and the studio itself, he kept forming separate shell companies for the theme park to fund it. And he used his own money to find the designers and the Imagineers as they would become known as. Now, this is important because he did not want architects. Obviously, he had to have architects for the project, but he didn't want them being the decision makers as far as the layout, the plans, all that stuff. He wanted his Imagineers and he wanted art directors to capture his vision appropriately. John Hench, his right-hand man for Disneyland, who had a special effects background, said that Walt walked into his office one day, looked at what he was doing, turned to leave, and said, by the way, John, you're going to work on Disneyland, and you're going to like it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how people were told that they were moving from art direction to uh, a theme park. So it doesn't come as a surprise that people thought he was absolutely bonkers, batshit crazy to build a park in Anaheim. They were like, First of all, there's nothing here. This is yeah. so weird. Well, I mean, yeah, he got the land. There was nothing there. It was nothing orange there. groves. So weird. And amusement parks themselves and around the country were dying at this time. And Disney, by all standards, was still a really small studio, even though it had you know a lot of employees and whatnot. Compared to Universal, compared to the other big, big, big studios, it was nothing. They also borrowed so much money. It was such a huge risk because of that. Disney employees believed in it, so they even donated to fund the project. Walt sold his home. He cashed his life insurance. He sold his stock holdings. He sold furniture, all because he wanted to keep construction going and keep funding the project. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what that feels like to have that gut feeling of this is going to work the odds are all against him you know theme parks are dying he's building an area that like there's no one there but he knows he knows that this is going to be huge and i mean obviously he was right so i'm so glad you brought that up because it seems like that's a theme throughout his career we saw that Uh with snow white as well and people were like you're crazy and he's like I really don't give a shit what you think because I know that I'm right. And is that tied to creativity? Having that 100% instinct? We've talked about this before, Jess, but everyone is creative. Everyone is creative in their own right. It doesn't matter what field you're in, what what you do. But having that that vision for something and 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, you you have to be a rule breaker. You have to be uh, someone who is willing to take risks if you want to achieve your vision sometimes. We see that a lot. I mean, a lot of creatives who break the rules, break the status quo, and a lot, I'm sure a lot of it is luck at some point, you know, luck of the draw, but you can't reach Disney level success without breaking some rules and yeah. Wow. Can't see the haters, which he did often, it seems. Yeah. So he sells all his stuff, basically. He's gambling his whole life savings, his whole life's worth, really, on this project. He is able to score partnership with ABC and to really get into the theme of everything and build what he wanted and what he envisioned, he sent the Imagineers to every theme park in the country so that they could take the best parts of each and kind of get some inspiration for how things are run and make sure that Disney was better than that. What a fun job. <laughs> I mean, can I sign up tomorrow? <laughs> I'm, right. I'm ready. So they got everything together and construction officially started in 1954. Now, the biggest thing that they were all set on was the hub and spoke concept. So people didn't feel lost within the park. Now, if you've ever gone to a theme park that's not Disney, it's so easy to get lost. You have no idea where <laughs> you are. But it always seems at Disney that you know where you are and you know how to get back to where you're going to, right? Mm -hmm. So that's on purpose. And each spoke from the hub had a visual draw to keep people moving because they didn't want people just standing there. When I was hearing all this, I was like, my mind is blown because it's so true. You're always able to tell where you're going or where you Mm -hmm. came from because they have the big visual landmarks and they also want to draw you down to different sections so that you're not just standing around and you actually keep the flow of traffic going. Genius. It's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And think about this is someone who was an animator, a cartoon <laughs> artist, and they're able to conceptualize this way to like entertain people, but keep it profitable in a mm-hmm. very creative way. And that's why they're called Imagineers. They have a title of their own. Main Street was modeled after Walt's hometown, which is pretty cool. And because he had so many different interests, they created the theme park around that. So all the lands that you see in Disneyland, Fantasy, Tomorrow, Frontier, Adventure, etc., those are all because Walt had specific interests in each of those areas that they created those lands. What's your favorite Disney Disneyland land? <laughs> That's so meta. Um, I don't know. I think I was always driven by the rides as a kid. So like I loved Tomorrowland because it had Space Mountain and mm. that was probably my favorite ride. It's a fun ride. But I don't know. Yeah. It's a tough question. What about you? I know. I love them all. I love them all for their own reasons. I do I do love Adventureland. Adventureland's uh, cool. Yeah, kind of being that rustic atmosphere. My favorite ride growing up, well, I mean, I love the Haunted Mansion, of course. That, oh, that one's classic. always so spooky and fun. I love the Matterhorn, though. Ugh, Matterhorn's that's so great. And that's such a, like, pinnacle spot in the park because it's kind of, like, in the middle and you can't miss it. I mean, you're driving past it on the... You drive past Disneyland on the freeway and you see the Matterhorn. So it's true. so iconic. What a ride. Uh, you mentioned this, but for the jungle part that they were insistent on having, as we all know, they actually built over an orange grove but they wanted to keep all the orange trees, so they had to go out and pluck all the oranges consistently to make it look like they weren't orange trees to fit the jungle aesthetic. 
and they actually put ads in the paper to get trees from people if they didn't want their trees anymore because they wanted to make it look so jungle-esque. So they were mm. like, please give us your trees. <laughs> Scrappy, I like it. Right? And it's all just because Walt wanted it to truly depict the Amazon. He was fascinated by that area of the world. Pretty cool. Love the jungle jungle ride. Yes. That's oh, so that was fun. always my favorite. The one in Disney World is so freaking cool. It's like oh, on another level. There. Let's go. I think I went every Someday. year for most of my childhood. I think I've been eight, nine times, ten times to Disney World. Yes. But you, we haven't been together, Jess. That's what's important. Well, that is the important thing. So we probably should get on that. I think we'd have a blast. <laughs> Anyways, now during this time, obviously... They're in a huge time crunch. They were on a one-year deadline to get it done. This naturally started causing labor disputes. One uh, year? I one can year. wait. Let the whole pause on that because that is bananas. Bananas. One year. Mm-hmm. Holy cow! Walt Talk about like, tight deadlines. Because mm-hmm. he was Walt, gambling make everything. It work. Yeah, he's yeah. like, we gotta, we gotta get this done. So Whoa. it started causing major tensions. There were labor disputes. <laughs> they were triple the original budget by this time, so it was about seventeen million dollars. Which, if you do the math on that with inflation, was ridiculous Damn. in today's money. So, just a lot of stress. But by 1955, they were ready to open to the public. They had 22 cameras broadcast the opening live on national television and it was actually co-hosted by ronald reagan before he was president obviously (laughs) it's so weird that makes sense i guess i mean he's an actor at the time he's a hollywood Hollywood. dude he's like sure now the actual opening day was a clusterfuck there's no (laughs) other way to describe this it was an absolute disaster they had employees referring to this day as Black Sunday <laughs> because I'm just to name a few things that happened. Hey, man, anyone who's been through a product launch before, <laughs> at least you weren't launching Disneyland because seriously happens. So oh, wow. they had vending machines running out. They had rides short circuiting. They had no drinking fountains because of the plumber strike. I mentioned the labor issues. So there was a plumber strike, and Walt had to choose between toilets or fountains, so he chose toilets, so there were no drinking fountains. There was a gas leak in Fantasyland. People were coming in with counterfeit tickets. They were over capacity. I mean, everything that could go wrong was going wrong on the opening day. Just terrible. Oh, dear. Now, Walt was urging the Imagineers in this beginning time to stand in line with the guests to learn about what they were doing, what they were saying, what their sentiments were towards the rides, towards the atmosphere, etc. And they all said, he was never interested in what you did yesterday, only in what you're going to do today or tomorrow. Which I thought, I mean, that kind of sums Walt up in a way. You know, he's always looking to the next project and the next thing. So the the people who have been working so hard are like, look at all this work that I've done. <laughs> look at and all he's like, these chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Now we have to build mm-hmm. Tomorrowland. He's like, I don't care that you're exhausted and we just open this in a year. You need to go listen to what the guests have to say about it. Relentless. Just want to crawl in a hole and die at that point. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> 
He also had them build into the park a one-bedroom apartment above Main Street so that he Ah. could keep an eye on everything. Uh Now, there was a lamp in there that he would turn on to alert the staff of his presence, which I think is pretty cool. It's just a more high-tech way instead of coughing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, there's this one story that I really enjoyed, and it was said that he would stand at the exit to wish the guests farewell because no one would leave early. It wasn't like it is today where people flow freely. People would stay until closing time every single day to get their money's worth. And according to him, this was customary. This was what he expected at the park. But one night, a family walked by and was leaving the park before closing time, and Walt was like, hey guys, where are you going? He asked why they were leaving early, worried that someone was rude or worried that they had a bad experience in some way. And they said everything was fantastic, but they were on the sky ride and they saw the highway and could see there was a lot of traffic. So they wanted to get ahead of it and beat the rest of the traffic. Walt did not like it (laughs) at all. So he decided that day that he would build a bigger park and would make it a world instead of a land because he wanted it to be that once you enter Disney world, you have no ties with the actual real outside world. So because of this one family, he wanted to make Disney world. Wow. You never know what's going to spark the next big idea or movement. Right. Now think of his poor employees at this time. They're like, we just finished this, man. We, <laughs> we need a yeah. break. And I like how they're still just back-to-back traffic on the highway in 1955 yeah. in California. No different. Makes sense. That adds up. No different. Now, the smells, the sights, how you see everything, all of that is choreographed. I mentioned that the Imagineers mm-hmm. are art directors, so... Even the color of the grass is art directed. Everything is made to be perfection and exists for a certain reason within Disneyland and Disney World because they think of it as a film. They think of it cinematically. Mm -hmm. So that's all on purpose. If you ever notice the little things at Disney, that's not a mistake. Even the people that are in there working, not a mistake. Everything. Like you said, yeah, everything is intentional. My brother worked at Disney for a long time and just the little tiny details about what you can do, where you can go, and Mm -hmm. the rules about it. It's so everyone stays immersed in that world and in that fantasy land, so to speak. Even It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's so cool. I mean, the fact that that comes from someone's brain to be able to do all that. I mean, obviously, it's a huge team, but he really was the visionary behind that. Mm-hmm. So much so that he wanted every detail choreographed to the point that Disneyland employees were not allowed to have facial hair. And this just changed a few years ago. I think 2018, they finally changed the rule. But hmm. even guests in the 50s and 60s, if they weren't neat and polished, oh. they were turned away. Now, I said facial hair. I don't know if you've ever seen a photo of Walt, but he had a mustache his whole life. So this was the most hypocritical thing. <laughs> He could have well, been mustaches are is it mustaches or mustache eye? No Th- idea. They're, <laughs> those were always allowed though, right? Because those are like proper facial. Oh, nothing. Not no. for Disneyland employees. Just shaking her head at me. No, no nope. facial hair. No mustache eye. Nothing. Nope. I wouldn't be able to work there. <laughs> <laughs> so far, you have a mustache. You're 100 years old. Lots of stuff happening this episode. <laughs> really a good look for me yeah i think so anyways 
because of all this, all the details going together, they're really trying to play. It's not a surprise, but they try to play on the emotional side to try to transform your experience. One Imagineer said, Walt was never really satisfied because he kept reaching for that intangible quality called perfection. And how do you know you reach it? You don't. So you keep reaching. And this was all part of that. Again, that's the end of this podcast. That sums up every single person that we cover. Yeah. So obviously they kept improving, but it wasn't exactly a smooth opening, smooth first year. And Walt really wanted to keep reinvesting the profits to improve the park. But his creativity often clashed with operations and the ops people that were like, dude, no, we can't do this. Stop. Again, not surprising at all. Mm -mm. But within a month, Disneyland was receiving 20,000 visitors a day. At the time, Mm. tickets were $1 for adults and 50 cents for kids. Can you even stomach that right now? No, I'm horrified. It's so expensive it's like now. Two something now, I think, for one oh, day. Oh man, I have no I haven't looked in so long, but it's outrageous. It's a dollar. A dollar. <laughs> Can you imagine? I wow. Gosh, so crazy. So I mentioned that they were really interested in getting in on TV and they struck a deal with ABC prior to Disneyland opening. Ratings were going really well with Disneyland, so and their broadcasts of that. So he got his very first show, which was the Mickey Mouse Club, which was a variety show for children. We could go on a whole tangent about all the Mouseketeers that are famous that went through that show and program. I forget we're doing a podcast because no one's even. <laughs> Kate's like dancing around dancing. right now. I think so she's a Mouseketeer. I wish, I wish I was a Mouseketeer. Are you I kidding me? That so was the pinnacle. You, I yeah, because I so can see that for you. Sing and dance really well, but that's <laughs> some call that's... you the star of this generation. <laughs> anyway, wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. Super cute. I think we all know. I think Justin Timberlake's one of the most famous ones. Brian Gosling. Yeah, so many of them. Kristen Aguilera. Yes. Lest we forget. Mm -hmm. Wait, was Britney Spears even on it? Yeah, she was. Okay. (laughs) Uh, One of the segments became of one of the shows that they had on ABC at the time became so successful. It was the Davy Crockett segment. That it led to Walt forming a record label because the songs were so popular and it was literally an overnight sensation. So he was like, eh, might as well add a record label so we can capitalize on this uh, song stuff. It's just all the banjo. Yeah, casual. (laughs) (laughs) So throughout the rest of the 50s and the early 60s, Walt became involved in various other projects. Now that Disneyland was kind of on its own, their television programming was going well, their film studio was going well. So he consulted for other exhibitions around the world and museums and whatnot. He actually consulted for the Winter Olympics at one point for their pageantry. So like opening and closing ceremonies. He was part of the Man in Space special. Uh, They also, during this time, created Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and 101 Dalmatians. Oh, love. Oh my gosh, love that movie. Just because he wasn't focused on Disneyland anymore or a film specifically doesn't mean he wasn't still breaking barriers. He kept breaking tech barriers over and over again by being the first to use the newest technology. So there was so much on this. Like, I wasn't familiar with the terms, but the point is that he saw a new technology and he was like, I want to use that. We're going to use that. And they did. And they would always become the first films to use that type of technology that was released. Hmm. 
He was actually a pioneer in television programming as well and was one of the first to present a full color program with Wonderful Wonderful World of Color in 1961. And around this time, he also launched the California Institute of the Arts with Roy, which he actually gave 25% of his estate to, fun fact. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I did not know That's that. That's incredible. No. Yeah. So, 1964, he debuts Mary Poppins. It was the most successful Disney film of the 1960s. They also do World Fair exhibits. So, they did four different exhibits, and this is actually why they developed It's a Small World. It was developed for Pepsi and UNICEF as, like, a hybrid (laughs) exhibit, and they reinstalled it at Disneyland after using the original concepts and the technology behind it. So, I didn't know that it was actually created for the World Fair, but lo and behold... It was. This is also why they did the Lincoln exhibit that I don't know if that still exists at Disneyland, does it? I think they have all of the presidents now or something like that. I think you're right. But again, we see his love for Lincoln as a young child coming through here. In 1965, he started developing plans for a ski resort. And this is when he started plans on Disney World as well. He also announced it officially to the world that they would be creating a Disney World. Now, his whole concept for this and the whole idea around it was to build the park around Epcot. I did not know what Epcot stood for. I thought it was just a word, but it actually stands for Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. So his vision for Epcot was to create an actual community and utopia-like community that people could actually live in, work in, etc. But obviously that's not what it is now it's just an attraction but that's literally what his vision was and people called him a futurist and he actually believed that the world could exist like that and he wanted to use this neighborhood to test it out to see if they could implement that in other parts of the world and country so (sighs) interesting (laughs) you're dropping a lot of knowledge bombs i i had no idea about epcot center or the, the name itself the only thing I know about Epcot is that you can drink the world because they have every country. That's what people try to you do there now. You would know that. Well, my dad uh, may or may not have tried that one time when I was little <laughs> with his best friend. <laughs> oh, Brian. Oh, Brian. Dad of the year. <laughs> I mean, I'm jealous that I was too young to do it with them. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. <laughs> Let's go but with yeah. your dad. Well, that's the plan. Seriously. That's what we'll do. But yeah, I had no idea that it was actually a more serious vision for it than just to create the park. He genuinely wanted to create this futurist type community. It's interesting that he was so anti-communism and was all about that for a period of his life. And yet he wants to create this ideal world that's... Right? uh, That feels a little... I don't know. They're kind of going against each other here. Which I feel like we saw that a lot. Yeah, a lot of mixed messages here. I mean, he's like, don't date the ink and paint girls, then he marries one. He's like, no facial hair, he has a mustache. I, he just, yeah, hmm. typical creative. So Do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Yes. In 1966, he ramps up his involvement in studio films again, so he got bored being away from it and wanted to be more involved. So he did the story development for the jungle book. He was involved in Winnie the Pooh. He was involved in the happiest millionaire. And while this was happening, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. He died that year, 10 days after his 65th birthday. And his last written words were Kurt Russell. And no one to this day knows what he meant. 
Kurt at the time was a child actor that had just signed with Disney, signed a huge contract. And he literally wrote it down on a piece of paper and no one, not even Kurt, knows what he was trying to say with that. Has Kurt Russell commented on it? Yeah, he was like, I have no idea. (laughs) I have no clue. Whoa. Can you imagine the most like famous person on the planet wrote your name down right before they passed away? I didn't know that he was so young when mm-hmm. he when he died. I mean, cancer. That's, yeah. that's one thing I do know. Now, the important thing to note here is I mentioned he had lung cancer, and he drank, he smoked, he did all the things, but he actively tried to separate his persona from who he actually was and was quoted saying multiple times, Walt Disney doesn't smoke, but I smoke and things like that. So he was a rampant smoker and evidently led to his lung cancer. And he unfortunately passed away before Disney World was open. So he never got to step foot into Disney World. Now, I have always heard this and I didn't know if it was true or not. But no, he is not actually frozen. (laughs) (laughs) But Jess, isn't that that why they made the movie Frozen? Because when you Google it, you (laughs) Fan theories galore. No, he was not frozen. He was cremated. He's in a mausoleum somewhere with his family uh, in an urn still. And yeah, he was not cryogenically frozen like they do in Austin Mm. Powers. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. Um, What a life. Right? It was said that the staff had a really hard time with his passing. And when they found out, they celebrated his life at one of the restaurants within Disneyland. John Hench, who you may remember was his right-hand man for the opening of Disneyland, said... Now we'll know how much of our work Walt did for us, which I thought was very poignant. Mm -hmm. They all felt like he would have wanted them to open that day at Disneyland because he often said the show must go on. So they honored that and they opened the park anyways. But now as an homage to him, the light in his apartment above Main Street stays on permanently. Oh God, I'm going to cry right now. I know. It's very, because I mean, Disney in a nutshell is tied to pretty much everyone every american's childhood and memories so there's very it's very emotional to think about that and it's stemmed from this one man he was the man behind it all now roy dedicated disney world to his brother at the inauguration but interestingly enough i did not know this the studio kind of abandoned animation after his death and they didn't revisit it until the late 80s so i don't know if that's a testament to how influential he was i don't know if he just was such a visionary that no one else could step into that role, but hmm. they really didn't get back into it for another 20 so years after wow. he passed away. Yes. So this brings us to dear Walt's legacy. Now, fun fact, just had to throw this in here somewhere. I thought the legacy was a good part to do that. The people that voiced Mickey and Minnie, obviously it was the voice after Walt did it himself they were actually happily married in real life, which some people know. I think it's just worth mentioning. It's so uh, it's Disney. So, it's so dis- It's so perfect. <laughs> it's just, it's too cute. Love it so much. Aww. Someone said, Walt knew there was a lot of child in every grown-up, which I think sums up Disney very mm-hmm. well. Uh, he also has been said to be the original creator of escapism with the parks. And as of 2018, Disney World was the most visited park in the world, and it hosted 157 million guests in one calendar year alone. Wow. Yeah. Now, this includes to this day 
39 square miles, obviously a world-class entertainment recreation center featuring the four theme parks, which I think has increased since 2018, two water adventure parks, 34 resort hotels, seven Disney vacation clubs, 81 holes of golf, two spas, wedding pavilion, ESPN worldwide sports complex, downtown Disney, an entertainment shopping dining complex, and Disney World itself is the largest single-site employer in the U.S. with $1.2 billion spent a year in payroll. If I could whistle right now, I would. I know. I wish I could whistle. I just (laughs) wanted to share that because when you think about the vastness that is Disney, I mean, that's just Uh one park and one entity out of their entire thing. They also have, as we know, Disneyland Resort. They have Disney Tokyo. They have Disneyland Paris. Mm. They have Hong Kong. They have Shanghai. They also have since acquired Marvel. They have ESPN. They have the rights to Star Wars. They have 20th Century Studios. <laughs> and uh, then, that blows my mind. I forget about Star Wars now that they uh-huh. had. It's it's so massive. It's incomprehensible. It seriously is. And obviously, it's considered an American institution. That goes without saying. They've always been on the edge of innovation. There have been so many museums built around Walt's life. He's been portrayed in numerous versions of fiction, countless documentaries. One interesting film was The King of America, which portrayed him as a power-hungry racist. This was done by a German author. So bringing that racist thing full circle. He was also portrayed by Tom Hanks in Saving Mr. Banks, which was about the making of Mary Poppins. Uh, Sparky the Sun Devil, which is the mascot for Arizona State University, was created after Walt Disney. It was done by a Disney illustrator, and the mascot was described as a mischievous imp. And the legend has it... (laughs) Yeah. The legend has it that this particular illustrator did not have a good relationship with Walt, so wanted to create this character version of him to kind of spite him, and it ended up sticking for ASU. And if you look at this mascot, you can see it so clearly. It's wild. Hold on. I have to look it up now. I I had no idea. What is a Mm -hmm. sun devil? I mean, I thought it was just... uh... It's Walt Disney. The mischievous (laughs) one. Crazy. He has a little mustache. Mm Mm-hmm. Sparky. (sighs) So weird. Beyond this, yeah, beyond his cultural influence in many, many shapes and sizes, as we can see by Sparky, he's still the record holder for most Oscar wins and nominations. He had 22 Oscar wins, 59 nominations. This also had included two special achievement awards. Several of his films are in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally significant. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's allegedly received more than 950 different types of honors from around the world. Wow. (laughs) Like, just wild. So I will leave you with this. Views of him as a person have obviously changed over the years. We touched on the racist. So I just want to read a few different takes on his persona and his work. Mm-hmm. One writer, Mark Langer, said earlier evaluations of Disney hailed him as a patriot, folk artist, and popularizer of culture. More recently, Disney has been regarded as a paradigm of American imperialism and intolerance, as well as a debaser of culture. Ooh. <laughs> Stephen Watts wrote that some denounced Disney as a cynical manipulator of cultural and commercial formulas, while others have said his work is a smooth facade of sentimentality and stubborn optimism, its feel good rewrite of American history. Very conflicting. His obituary in the Times calls his films wholesome, warm-hearted, entertaining, of incomparable artistry, and of touching beauty. Someone else said he reshaped American culture and consciousness. 
The last thing I will say is Disney remains the central figure in the history of animation. Through technological innovations and alliances with governments and corporations, he transformed a minor studio and a marginal form of communication into a multinational leisure industry giant. Despite his critics, his vision of a modern corporate utopia as an extension of traditional American values has possibly gained greater currency in the years after his death. Hmm. Lots to unpack there, Kate, so I ask you. <laughs> oh, man. Is he the worst? Here's the thing. After hearing <laughs> his story, because we were talking about this earlier when we took a break, about how there's Disney the brand. So even when you're doing your notes and your research, you're typing Disney over and over again, but you're talking about the person behind that brand. Yep. That's the person we're talking about. And hearing his backstory and how he had a vision as a 17-year-old. I mean, he was so young. Mm -hmm. He didn't know it was going to turn, well, maybe he had a hunch, but it was going to turn to this whole conglomeration that literally took over the world, essentially. Yep. I mean, there's Disneyland's in so many different countries. I think about that young person, that kid who is drawing constantly and really drove this whole legacy, and I'm so fascinated by it. So... I'm going to say he's not the worst. Uh, also, with all of those issues stemming or like controversies, a lot of it sounds like it's not even confirmed. Like it's, a lot of it's hearsay. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the whole thing with him being cryogenically frozen. Agreed. When you're that big, there's going to be so many rumors. And I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I'm, there probably were major issues. But uh, based off everything you said, I, I'm so fascinated by Walt Disney. And that was beautifully done. Thanks. So. I agree. I'm equally fascinated. And I would like to point out that because we didn't even scratch the surface, this may or may not be the first episode that ever has a second part to it in the future. So Ooh. let us know if you're, you're interested in part two. We didn't even get to touch on things like the crazy Disney fandom, uh -huh. um, all of that good stuff. We could go in depth on the Imagineers. There's just so much, and it's it really is fascinating because it has a place in all of our hearts, I think, and all of our childhoods. Even, like I said, adults love Disney. That's why he created it. So Hold on, I'm emailing you right now? That's <laughs> my request for a second episode. That was so, so fun, and I want to learn more. So nostalgic. Yeah. So let us know if you have your favorite Disney story, your favorite Disney movie. Let us know at podcast.designpickle.com. Let us know if you want a part two. Uh, let us know if we got Oob's name wrong, which we probably did. Sorry, Mr. Iwerks. It's terrible of us. But yeah, we'll be back uh, We'll be back around this time next week with another, <laughs> another person. Yeah. Uh, again, well done, Jess. That was beautiful. And be sure to subscribe if you're not already. Share with your friends. We love to get more listeners. Uh, so Jess doesn't have to research more Walt Disney without anyone listening. And follow <laughs> us on, on uh, social media, too, because we're posting uh, custom illustrations of each person that we cover on there. And a shout out to our illustration team for creating those. They're, they're awesome. So check it out. Creatives are the worst on Instagram and worst creatives on Twitter. Bye. Thanks for listening to Creatives are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>